You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, Ironside, MD, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Ketzel, Josiah, Logan, Pablo, Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. Sometimes, here on the Pirate History Podcast, we can get into some pretty heavy topics. Real life isn't a Disney movie, and pirates lived in a brutal world. However, I do like to lighten the mood, sometimes, whenever the opportunity arises. So today I want to begin with something on the light side. (laughs) 9-11. I'm sorry, I don't mean to make light of a tragedy, but I see myself starting a show with 9-11 when I want to do so, and it's just ridiculous. But I don't want to talk about 9-11 itself today. Instead, 9-11 conspiracy theories. As some of you have certainly noticed by now, I'm a bit prone to conspiracy theories. Not necessarily the believing in them, but I'm interested in the culture surrounding them and the history of them. When it comes to conspiracies that I do believe, well, well, that's complicated. One that I do prescribe to is this. I believe that conspiracy theories have been pushed and pushed to the extreme in a successful attempt to discredit real conspiracies. It's like, well, say that somebody were to publish evidence that the ultra-wealthy have bought off governments all around the world to ignore and, in many cases, enable their own financial crimes. But if someone were to suggest that there may be some kind of coordinated plan to keep that corrupt system in place, well, they tend to get laughed off. It turns into, you know, oh, look at this conspiracy theorist over here. Why don't you tell us about the lizard people? When it comes to 9-11, whenever anyone 
raises legitimate concerns, at least what I consider to be legitimate concerns, about the government ineptitude. In both our executive branch and law enforcement bodies, the ineptitude leading up to 9-11, whoever brings that up is inevitably going to get hit with nonsense about jet fuel and steel beams. Sometimes it will be from people who are mocking their legitimate concerns, and sometimes it will be from people who actively believe that CIA agents were in the Twin Towers planting explosives. Now, I don't know that I believe there was any kind of conspiracy surrounding 9-11. I do think that some people in the U.S. government should have been held accountable for their failure to stop an attack about which they had been warned. But in the end... Occam's razor still stands. Is it more likely that there was some kind of conspiracy, or that those in power, those behind, those governmental and financial interests, merely took advantage of a situation? I mean, that's what governments do. So what does all this have to do with piracy? Well, last time we talked about the Grand Mughal, the jewel of the throne, Aurangzeb, the last great Mughal of the empire. He's the last because his empire marked the beginning of encroachment into Indian territory. And there were a ton of good reasons for England to push into India. But they still needed an excuse to go to war, a causus belli. They needed the Mughal to make an aggressive move against the English in India. And eventually, Aurangzeb was going to give them that. He was going to do so in response to the greatest act of piracy that the world had ever seen. This is episode 214, Contradictions. Now, we're not going to get into that act of piracy today. We're not going to discuss the potential conspiracies behind it either, but I do want you to keep that in mind, that at the very least, the actions of the fancy were going to impact the world stage in a very, very big way. But we are going to talk about Henry Every, and his crew, and his ship, the Fancy. I think part of what makes Every such a fascinating character, and such a long-lasting figure in the mythology of piracy, is the contradiction in him. There are just so many different versions of Henry Every, and some of those versions are pure invention. They're literary characters, or the leading man in a stage play, but even when we get down to the truth of Henry Avery as close as we can, when we look at what the men who actually knew him said about him, he's still fascinating and entirely changeable character. Douglas R. Burgess Jr. writes in The Pirate's Pact, quote, Henry Avery, alias Long Ben Avery, alias Henry Bridgman, was a study in contradictions. His piratical career would be more profitable than any before or since. His name second only to that of Blackbeard in the pantheon of seagoing rogues, yet he was neither a particularly good mariner nor an inspired leader of men. He could be witty and generous, or sullen and cruel, depending on his mood. He professed himself to be patriotic, yet was one of the relatively few pirates in the 17th century to sail without a privateering commission. Despite his fearsome reputation, he was less a great pirate than an exceptional confidence man. Nothing about him was ever as it seemed. The true man concealed, as many of his closest friends admitted, behind the basilisk, inscrutable smile. 
End quote. Now, I might take issue with a few of those assertions. For example, that Henry Avery wasn't a particularly good mariner. He was bred to the sea, remember. But the questions of his personal character are really worth asking. Was Henry Avery a great pirate? I mean, he was a successful pirate, there's no doubt about it. But was that really his influence? If we were to remove Henry Avery from the equation, would this story fundamentally change? I can't answer that yet, but keep that in mind as well. Still, it's not impossible to see Henry Avery as a clever opportunist, more than, you know, a real pirate, a man who read the tea leaves on board the Charles II, who saw how things were going to go and decided to ride that tiger to his benefit rather than get eaten by it. When we last left Henry Avery and the crew of the Fancy, they were departing the Cabo Verde Islands. That was when Henry Avery, the self-professed patriot pirate, engaged in his first act of piracy against Englishmen. This was shortly after a mutiny he led against Englishmen. But he was something of a gentleman to those Englishmen at Cabo Verde. He even went and sold those stolen goods to bring his victims back a little bit of coin for their trouble. Now, we don't know why he did so. You know, the story is going to be much more focused on what's going to come later. We don't have great records on this, but you could easily imagine a scene in which the crew of the Fancy unilaterally decided to attack those English ships because, you know, pirates. But Henry Avery, seeing the potential political fallout, talked the men around. Not from engaging in the piracy, that was a given, they'd voted on it, but talked them out of committing any kind of violence against the English and talked them into returning at least a little bit of the profit that they made. These are moves that will save a little bit of face with the English people, and it might be just enough to prevent them from sending out a pirate hunter to chase the fancy down. At the very least, even if they did manage to send that hunter out and they captured Fancy, that might be a bit of a boost to Henry Avery's personal reputation. With those men at Cabo Verde vouching for his actions, he could always say that his crew was out of control, but he did what he could to rein them in. From the Isle of May in Cape Verde, Fancy headed east for mainland Africa. They made landfall somewhere on the coast of what they call Guinea, that's the southern coast of that big hump that makes up northwest Africa. Guinea was something of a breadbasket for the powers of Europe, you know, financially speaking. They had ivory and gold and slaves. You could go there with a ship full of relatively precious trade goods and return with ivory and gold dust and human beings for slave labor, much, much more valuable cargo. The European powers would trade with the coastal peoples there at Guinea in a mutually profitable relationship. It's a relationship that built a certain amount of trust, and Henry Avery was going to exploit that. Now, we've discussed Henry Avery's history as an interloper, an illegal slave trader, and he fell back into those habits here. Fancy arrived off the coast and raised the flag of St. George, the English flag. It was a sign to anyone ashore that this ship was friendly and here to trade. 
The locals loaded up somewhere between five and twelve pounds of gold dust, and maybe a dozen people, both men and women, rode out to board the fancy. Now I can't... I can't quite put my head in their space. You know, the image of pirates is one of those that's burned into the popular consciousness, the maritime tradition of early modern Europe, from sailors to ships is equally present in the Atlantic world, so I'm trying to picture what climbing aboard that ship must have felt like for those men and women. But it's difficult to do. Remember, though, that many of the sailors on board Fancy were young men. Some of them were teenagers on their first voyage, but many more were conscripted men from a naval hospital. On Fancy in particular, among pirate ships of the day, there would have been a lot of men with peg legs and hook hands and eye patches. And their demeanor, their dress even, certainly was not regulation. These Africans were used to working with East India ships from the Netherlands and England and France. And those ships had certain rules in place, but the pirates didn't. I'm picturing a ship full of dirty, villainous-looking men, all staring at the newcomers with dangerously innocent smiles. They were greeting and cajoling and ever so welcoming, but at the helm, in a fine blue navyman's coat and a broad-brimmed hat, was the captain. I wonder if they felt any trepidation as they came aboard. Regardless, once they all were aboard, the guns and the swords came out. The pirates captured their gold dust, and then captured the men and women as slaves. Now, in his book King of the Pirates, E.T. Fox takes us on an interesting side trip at this point. We won't go into that in any depth, but it was essentially about a trading fort and outpost at Accra in modern-day Ghana. A few years prior to Henry Every's arrival in the region, the fort at Accra was captured by African rebels rebels who flew a black flag with a man holding a scimitar. However, in 1693, Denmark dispatched two ships, Golden Lion's Arms and Christianus Burge, to retake the Fort at Accra. Those ships entered into negotiations with the rebels at Accra and came to an agreement. The Danes would pay a ransom and allow the rebels to keep everything that had been in the fort when it was captured and allow them to go free. The rebels agreed and went on their way, and the Danes were able to resettle the Fort at Accra. Then those two Danish vessels sailed for the nearby port of Wida, or Wida. It's, yes, the same name you're probably thinking of, but Wida was a major center for the slave trade. And the Danes bought hundreds of slaves there, plus a large amount of gold dust and other valuables. Now, they weren't heading back to Denmark. They were going to head for the East Indies for a colony out there and their next stop was at a smallish island called Principe. Principe was a common watering post for ships heading south from the coast at Guinea on their way to the Cape of Good Hope. Now, before we move on, we need to talk about Denmark and their role in the Nine Years' War. When the war against France, and Louis especially, broke out, Sweden and Denmark signed up with the Allies, with England and Germany and the Netherlands. They had just as much interest in halting French advances as anyone else.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. But once the war got going, the Danes and Swedes realized that they could benefit far more if they advance their own maritime interests, rather than fight a continental land war. So they both pulled out of the Grand Alliance and the Nine Years' War. And they did push their interests at sea, and in their colonial holdings, but that being said, there was still a state of peace between the Allied nations and the Northern Kingdoms. They never entered into any kind of conflict with each other. Here in 1694, England and Denmark were still at peace. When Golden Lion's Arms and Christianus Burge were at Principe taking on water, it was there that the fancy arrived on the scene. Again, records are sparse. We know that Henry Every, from the helm, demanded that both of these ships surrender to him, and we know that the Danes resisted. They put up a fight. Now, they were going to lose that fight. Neither ship was a match for the fancy. Remember that the Charles II was one of the best frigates in the world. But they were still fine Danish vessels, you know, warships dispatched to take a fortress. They had enough firepower to break down the walls of the fort if need be. Still, though, well, this was fancy's first action at sea. And it didn't last very long, just a little over an hour, Fancy only lost one pirate while the Danes lost five men. Now that's not exactly an epic sea battle, but think about what that says about the Fancy. You've got two warships with experienced naval captains that surrender in the face of a battle with this English frigate. When Henry Every and his men climbed aboard the two Danish vessels, they found that a windfall awaited them. They captured some forty pounds of gold dust and even more in ivory. Then the pirates questioned some of the crewmen. We can assume they did so at the point of a cutlass. In doing so, they found out that one of the merchants aboard Golden Lion's arms smuggled a chest full of coined gold and precious stones ashore during the battle. 
So a boat with two Danish crewmen and one pirate, we don't know who it was, but a boat rowed ashore to collect this merchant and his chest. When they arrived, they'd found that he'd hidden the plunder and himself. Imagine that scene, though. There's a Danish merchant hiding in the bush on a tropical island with a chest full of unbelievable riches stashed away somewhere with a saber-wielding pirate standing on the shore demanding that he present himself. The merchant decided to come forward and to turn over his treasure to the pirates. We don't know how much was in there, but pearls and rubies and gold coins do tend to add up. Then the pirates took some people. Not slaves, believe it or not. In fact, they did the opposite. The fancy handed over seven of the Africans that they'd just kidnapped to the Danes. E.T. Fox suggests they may have done so in exchange for rum and some provisions. Or maybe it was just Henry Every doing things his way. Maybe he traded a few slaves as a bit of a consolation prize for the amazing amount of treasure that they had just stolen. Instead, though, the fancy took either 14 or 17 Danish sailors with them. Men who, when the fancy departed, wanted to go with them. Probably. You know, pirates did take men against their will, especially when those men had skills that were needed aboard. Surgeons and carpenters, that kind of thing. But we know that the fancy had a surgeon, and a cooper, and a carpenter. The cooper and surgeon were forced to sail with them, and the carpenter was one of the leaders of the mutiny. So it's possible that every man of those Danish sailors was conscripted against his will, but equally possible that they were volunteers. And these fourteen or seventeen men were on top of the Englishmen that they had taken with them at Cape Verde. They had a, a full crew, more than a full crew at this point. Now, much later on, Henry Every's men would claim that this operation was legal in the eyes of England, and they claimed so because they said England was at war with Denmark, which we know they were not. But Every's men seemed really certain of this, and they argued that it was Henry Every that had told them it was legal due to the war. Now, that could just be Henry Every's mistake. These were confusing times, and the alliance status between the Danes and the Allied powers was complex. But it could just be a touch of the con man in Every. The captain telling his men this was a legitimate target of war for his own benefit. And there's the contradiction again. I mean, who is Henry Every? What role did he really play in the crew of the fancy? Was he talking his men into attacking these ships, or was it the other way around? In the end, the fancy pirates marooned nearly all the Danes there on Pensepe. Now, that's not a death sentence by any means, far from it. They had a source of fresh water, and ships stopped off at Pensepe all the time. Someone would, and eventually did, pick them all up. But the pirates burned one of the Danish vessels and took the other one with them. That's how many men they had at this point, enough to sail two relatively large ships. When the Fancy, and her consort, sailed away from Principe, they made for yet another island off the coast of Africa. Fernando Po, it was called at the time, or modern-day Bioko. They careened their ship, this was the first time Fancy had enjoyed a good scrape in her lifetime, but then the carpenters got to work on their ship. And this is one of my favorite things about pirates, and it's something that we haven't seen 
too much of before now. The buccaneers did some of this, but it's going to become much more prevalent. The pirates aboard Fancy cut out all of the extraneous woodwork on the ship, including the bulkheads. You know, a, a bulkhead is a protective wall within a ship's hold, and it served an important purpose. Mostly it was for fire protection on gun decks. If one of the big guns were to backfire or explode, or if the ship was just to take a hit, this series of bulkheads would protect men in other sections of the deck. Pirates, though, did not follow OSHA regulations and ripped all of those right out. Bulkheads, really any wood that wasn't entirely necessary, they slowed a ship down, and they slowed men down when they were running around the deck. Then the pirates got to work on the ship's cabins, the private sleeping quarters for the officers, normally. They tore all of those out. The extra lumber that they lost made the ship lighter still, and the open space allowed for more guns and cargo and men. Now, the captain's cabin was a different story. The captain's cabin, what they often call the grand cabin, is usually under the quarter deck, the raised deck near the end of the ship. A lot of pirate vessels did keep the grand cabin, oftentimes because it was structurally necessary to do so, but they often did repurpose it. We don't know if they did that on fancy or not, but they did cut out a ton of extraneous weight. It's something that nearly every ship that would encounter the fancy would note in their reports. An East India Company ship would write later on, quote, The fancy was too nimble for them by much, having taken down a great deal of his upper work and made her exceeding snug, which advantage added to her well-sailing before, causes her to sail so hard she fears not who follows her. End quote. Now the fancy was going to make a number of other stops on the coast of Africa, but these weren't piratical stops. They were there merely to trade. At one stop they bought honey and beeswax. They took on wood and water. You know, nothing illegal here. But there was a last bit of drama in the Atlantic Ocean. The Danish prize they had with them was under the command of Henry Adams, one of the leaders of the mutiny and a quartermaster on board Fancy now serving as a captain. But the men aboard that Danish prize apparently had a difference of opinion with those on board the Fancy. The exact nature of this disagreement isn't made clear anywhere. It could be anything from navigational decisions to the distribution of plunder. I think it's likely that there was an argument that they may have had enough treasure already, you know, maybe one side was arguing they had enough to go ahead and retire. They didn't need to sail on. Whatever the case, the disagreement almost came to a head. But then, for some reason, the men from that Danish prize returned to the Fancy, including the captain, who returned to his role as quartermaster, and Fancy shot a hole in the hull of their prize. They sunk her. Now, the order that this happened in isn't extremely clear either. The men on board the prize ship may still have been aboard when Fancy struck her sinking blow. That might be what convinced them to come back to the crew. Or maybe it was just the threat of violence with the Fancy that convinced them to surrender. Or maybe it was just sweet reason on the part of Henry Every. We don't know, but the crew was reunited, their Danish prize sunk, and they sailed on. As the Fancy approached the Cape of Good Hope, it became time to take a wide berth. English and Dutch ships were more and more common 
near the Cape of Africa, especially the closer you get to the coast. So the fancy sailed out to sea, and then to the south, and finally, around the Cape of Good Hope. Their first known port of call, as with so many other pirates, was St. Augustine Bay, on the island of Madagascar. Next time we're going to discuss the ingathering of the rest of the pirates we have talked about in recent weeks there at St. Augustine Bay, and their preparations for the greatest pirate raid in history. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody that has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, you can visit us at piratehistorypodcast.com, about which keep your eyes and ears open. We have news in the works. But as always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight